Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. There are two kings, Ahab and Jehoshaphat. There is a divided kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom called the kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom called the kingdom of Judah. Ahab is a wicked man. Let's just put this very bluntly. Ahab comes from a long line of corrupt kings in the northern kingdom. They have been under the oppression of the Assyrians for a while, but there's a space of time as we pick this story up where they are not particularly bothered by the Assyrian enemy, a time of temporary peace. And Ahab, taking advantage of this time when his military is available to him and not preoccupied with other battlefronts, begins to think of a parcel of land that is known as Ramoth Gilead. And he... Ramoth Gilead has been occupied by the enemy. It's now under their control. It lies on the eastern border of the northern kingdom of Israel. And this chafes King Ahab. That something, a city that is within his territory, is under enemy occupation. And he decides this would be a good time perhaps to put my military together and go back and drive out the enemy and reclaim our city. Now, all of that sounds like it's very reasonable to do. I think any sane person in that position would probably be desiring to take their city back. Ahab and Jehoshaphat are not friends particularly. But with the common foe of the Assyrians breathing down their necks, that forces the two kings into an alliance. They don't particularly like each other, but they need each other right now. So Jehoshaphat and Ahab are on speaking terms. And Ahab, thinking, I can use all the reinforcement I can get my hands on, summons Jehoshaphat and asks him his opinion. He says, I am thinking about going back and taking Ramoth Gilead. Would you be willing to help me do that? Now, Ramoth Gilead was meaningless to Jehoshaphat. It wasn't in his kingdom. But it was this sense of cooperation of those two working with each other to keep the Assyrian yoke at bay that drove Jehoshaphat to consider My army is your army. My horses are your horses. My people are your people. 
But, and this is what Jehoshaphat brings to the table, he has more of a sense of spirituality than Ahab does, which Ahab has zero spirituality, at least righteous godliness and spirituality. And Jehoshaphat is somewhat in tune with the Lord, more sensitive to his need of God. And he says to Ahab, I think we can probably join together and, and do this. However, have you thought about asking the Lord what he thinks about this? And Ahab surprisingly says, well, I haven't thought about it, but let's do it. So Ahab calls on 400 of his own prophets in the kingdom. Now, under a godless king, under a succession of godless kings, in a country that is departed from the Lord a long time ago, and they have become Baal worshippers, and they're, they're a sorry mess. You're not going to find 400 godly prophets. These are false prophets. They are godless prophets. And Ahab has his own way of doing his spiritual thing. How many of you here have ever attempted to have prayer with a person who has no God bearings whatsoever? You ever tried that? It's awkward, isn't it? They don't know what to do during prayer. They don't know how to pray. Sometimes we as Christians offer to pray for people. Sometimes they've told me no. And sometimes they've agreed because they're desperate for anything that'll work. But they don't know how to pray. I carry my part, but they don't do anything to help. I had the principal of the uh, junior high school out in California when we lived out there. I was the coach of the 7th and 8th grade basketball teams. And he began to confide in me some trouble he was having. And one of the times when I'd called him to talk basketball, he wanted to talk how difficult life was for him as the principal of this school. And he said, he said quite frankly, he said, I, I'm needing prayer. And I said, wonderful, let me pray for you right now. He said, no, that would not be a good idea. I don't want to do that right now. He was afraid, even on the phone, of having prayer. So I said, well, that's, that's all right. I didn't mean to put you in an embarrassing position. I will remember you in prayer. And he said, I, I appreciate that. So you see, you get in awkward positions when people don't understand how we feel about touching God or praying. And... Ahab's response to this suggestion, let's check with the Lord, is he says, we'll just check with my prophets. That's the way we do things around here. And these prophets come before the king. They put on their best clothing. This is an opportunity to really put on a show. So they go and get their fancies robes out. And... It seems as though, the way the Bible tells this story, one at a time, these false prophets come before the king, and they tell him, 
Go and take Ramoth Gilead. It's yours. Victory is yours. But these prophets also seem to be a little bit competitive to catch the king's eye and the king's favor. So as the prophecies went on, some of the prophets began to try and distinguish themselves with the king. And not only does God want you to have this, but it's going to be a a route. One man had some iron horns that he had made. Now, I don't think he took time to make iron horns for this occasion, but he had made them himself, the Bible says. And he brought these iron horns before the king, and he said, with these iron horns, O king, not only are you going to win, but you're going to gore the enemy and defeat them with these iron horns. And it just got ridiculous. Jehoshaphat is observing this whole process. And when he gets done and realizes 400 men have just come before the king and told him what he wanted to hear, he says, don't you have in all of the kingdom one godly prophet? And it's interesting Ahab's response because he doesn't take umbrage that Jehoshaphat has just insinuated his prophets are not godly. He understands they're not godly. They're just convenient. And they serve his purpose quite well because all they were were yes men. He wanted to reinforce his ego. So Jehoshaphat says, don't you have one godly prophet? And Ahab says, yes, we have one. Where is he? I quit using him a long time ago. It seems like every time this man spoke, it was bad news for me. There's not much you can say to a wicked king until you get his wickedness straightened out. So Ahab retired him, and he stuck with his yes men. Jehoshaphat said, well, let's, let's see what this prophet of the Lord has to say. Ahab sends a servant to go and fetch a prophet named Micaiah. Micaiah comes before the king. He hasn't been before the king in a long time. And the servant tells Micaiah on the way to see the king, now listen, 400 of his prophets have already told him it's a good idea to go take Ramoth Gilead. I'm telling you right now, tell the king it's good to go take Ramoth Gilead. He was giving him the message, this This was not the message from the Lord. This is what you will say before the king. And and Micaiah says, I I cannot help but tell the king what God tells me. Now, I like that attitude. I like that commitment. doesn't matter what the king wants to hear. This is what God says. That's boldness. That's truth. And Micaiah does this really unexpected thing. He comes before the king, and the question is stated officially. Shall I go and take Ramoth Gilead? And Micaiah has devised a little plan between the time he was told to come and the time he arrives that he's just going to toy with the king a little bit. Micaiah says, go and take it. The Lord will give you the victory. Now, here's the interesting response. 
Ahab says, how many times do I have to tell you, how many times do I have to tell you just to speak the word of the Lord to me? Well, no, I'm asking the same question. Ahab, how many times have you had to tell Micaiah that? Zero. But Ahab has this way of turning the whole situation around to make him look good. And Micaiah looked bad. Like they've had all of these confrontations before where Micaiah comes and lies to the king and the, and the king has to put him through water torture to get him to tell him the truth of the Lord. And it's never been like that. But that's the spin that Ahab puts on this. How many times do I have to tell you? Give me the truth. Micaiah says, okay. The truth is this. If you try to do this, God's not with you. You will lose your own people in this battle. And you yourself are going to die. And Ahab says, that's the man I know. This whole thing of truth in this story is interesting because it tells us some things about truth. The first thing that we understand about truth is People tend to tune out the truth at the point it becomes inconvenient for them. More accurately, I might say, people tend to reject the truth when they are determined to follow their own wicked ways and they don't want truth to interfere with their plans. They become so steeped in the rebellion, they essentially say, I want to do what I want to do. I don't care if it's right or wrong. I want to do what I want to do. I don't care what it'll cost me. I want to do what I want to do. That's the rejection of truth when truth is inconvenient. Now, this applies to humanity in so many different ways. It probably, in some embarrassing ways, applies to even many of the Christians here today. You've got your plans, you're doing what you want to do, and your biggest fear is God's going to get in the way of you doing what you want to do. Because you doing what you want to do is fun, or it's convenient, or you think it's fulfilling. And we as Christians, even we have to battle against that. We have to be willing to accept the truth from God, even if it intersects with the direction of our life. We've been tempted many times just to tune God out. We don't want to hear what he has to say because we've got our plans made. Truth can be so inconvenient. This is what happened with Ahab and the kingdom kingdom of northern Israel. He'd already made his plans. And to hear the word of the Lord and risk God saying your plans are no good. Ahab wasn't up for that. He had his plans. He wanted Ramoth Gilead. People tend to reject the Bible because they find out it confronts their sins. People tend to reject going to church because there are some times when you sit in church, you feel convicted for your sins. So the answer to this is not to hear truth, 
learn the truth, embrace the truth, follow the truth, but avoid the truth. Don't read the Bible, just like Ahab did for the prophet. Don't listen to him. It's the truth, but you don't want to hear it, so let's just retire him. Don't read the Bible because it's going to tell me things about my life that I don't want to hear. And certainly don't go to church because the preacher can be so nosy. Throughout my ministry, I have had people accuse me of sitting on the rooftop and listening down the chimney. They don't understand it's the Holy Spirit that is listening. And I don't pretend... When I preach to say there's somebody here that God told me that this is for you, I, I figure that most of the time there's somebody there that somehow the message applies to. But I don't pretend to have the specific information. Now, God can give that to him if he wants to, but he doesn't usually do that. So whenever I preach these things and people think somebody's been talking to you, somebody's told you about me, It's interesting how the Holy Spirit can lay those things open. And then what people do with it. That's the important thing. I remember preaching a revival back in my very young days. And a man that got up, sat in the back of the church and got up during the preaching and told his friends sitting nearby, or his family, he says, "I, I can't. I can't take this anymore. And he just walked out. That man died a week later. Now, I'm not trying to insinuate anything. That's not the way it always works. But it's a sad situation when somebody hears the truth, rejects the truth because of their own selfish lifestyle, and then has really no chance to process that and get right with the God. They have made a public rejection. I remember... The story of a man I learned about. You learn a lot of things when you're on the evangelistic field. Talking with various pastors and the situations they have had to face. I I remember the story of the man that was visiting the church. He was not a Christian. But the minister, whoever was doing the preaching, began to move in the power of the Spirit The Holy Spirit had shown this preacher that this man was being unfaithful to his wife. And whenever the preacher called him out, he stood up and he said, you're a liar. That is not true and I'll never be back. But it was true. And in one of those little visitations that this couple was having, He had snuck over to the woman's house. But the husband unexpectedly came back home. He wasn't expected to be home. He found the man, and he took a shotgun, and he killed him. This is the man that rejects the voice of the Holy Spirit that points out truth. And prophesying his own doom says, I'll never be back. How true he was. The second thing about truth is people learn to live in this world of lies and love their world of lies, like Ahab did. Surrounded himself with 400 supposedly spiritual people who were going to give them spiritual guidance. They had been trained 
to tell the king exactly what he wanted to hear. But that was good enough for the king. They were playing games in their spiritual world, and everybody was happy. Nobody is going to blow the whistle on them because they're all happy playing their games. They had learned to live in this world of self-deception. They were happy with it, and they were continuing on. Ahab was perfectly, perfectly content. He knew that the only man with the word of God was Micaiah, but he didn't want to hear him, so he created this false world around him. There are those who purposely choose to reject the truth. Then there are those who are innocently deceived and they don't know any better because they are the children of the people who reject the truth. I remember years ago, as there was a, a program, a news program, I believe it was, on, on television that were, they were investigating... It could have been the Ku Klux Klan, but I believe it was skinheads. The skinheads were just hyper-KKK, right? And they were doing an expose on these people. And the thing that was so shocking, so disturbing, you know the hate that comes out of these groups. But the children, four, five, six-year-old, that had been brainwashed, and they could make the hateful statements, just like the adults. And the cameras zeroed in and focused in on some of the little children who were spouting off all the rhetoric of the hate groups. And my heart just broke to think this child doesn't have a clue what this is all about. But they've been brainwashed into this hate. They are living in a false world, but not of their own choice. Now, I know that the atheists today are concerned that Christians brainwash their children. Let me tell you the difference between brainwashing and instructing. Brainwashing involves false information. Christians are not brainwashing their children when they are training them up in the ways that they should go. Christians are not brainwashing their children when they're teaching them the Scriptures and what the Bible says. That's not brainwashing. The world would argue with us, but whenever you are teaching truth, that's not brainwashing. In this make-believe world where people live, some by their own decision to be there, and some because they were born into it. In this make-believe world, these people have no absolute moral bearings. They just make up their own rules. They're very content to live in this world of deception. And they learn to bitterly hate truth and discredit truth as the enemy of all that is good. We are seeing that in the 21st century United States of America. We possess, we, we have certain biblical truths that are sacred to us. We hold dear to our hearts. And the world is flipping this around and making it look as though truth is the enemy of everything that is good and right for this country. And the lies are the good things for the country. And quite frankly, the church is being backed into a corner, and in a crisis place, we have to make a decision. What are we going to do about having the truth thrown back at us as being unhealthy and dangerous, is a word that is often used. 
dangerous for people and dangerous for our children. I have not known of another time in the history of the United States of America when that which is good and right and holy has been so thoroughly turned around to be bad and dangerous. It is truly that world that the man wrote about in that little poem where he says, I dreamed that I had somehow come to a place called topsy-turvydom where right was wrong and wrong was right. And the poem goes on. Built upon the concept of living in a world where all values are reversed. We're living it. It's in your face. What are you going to do with truth? What is our responsibility? We know what the world is doing with the truth. They're rejecting it. Bitterly, angrily rejecting truth. And the question I guess that we could ask, should ask, is why is deception so powerful? Why is deception so effective? When we can speak truth and people don't clamor to hear truth, but you can speak very evident lies and you'll have a following. Why is deception so effective? It's because deception is sponsored by the work of Satan. Evil and powerful forces are at work to deceive the world. Deception is the biggest tool Satan has. Satan is a liar. He is the father of all lies, Jesus said. He said it very clearly. Now, given Satan and given Jesus, who, if we take a vote, is telling the truth? The enemy lies, but Jesus said he's a liar. I believe Jesus. So he's a liar. He's not only a liar, he's the best. He is the granddaddy of all liars. Jesus used the phrase, the father of all lies. In Revelation 12, 9, there is this symbolic picture of Satan as a great dragon. In the heavens, the tail drew a third part of the stars. And the wording that goes along with this image of Satan in that 12th chapter is that he is the one who deceives the whole world. I said deception is his most effective tool to carry out his mission. What's his mission? To kill and what else? And steal and what else? Destroy. Kill and steal and destroy. He has a very definite mission. He wants to do this. He lives for this. He breathes this. He wants this more than anything every day of his existence. Every moment of every day, he wants nothing more than to kill and steal and destroy. Imagine having a neighbor like that. That would be the neighbor from hell, would it not? Somebody who lives just to hurt people and destroy things and to kill. That is the enemy. He has a mission. He works toward it every day. And if he has the power to kill, now don't raise your hand because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but this would be the poll I would take and say, how many of you think that Satan has the power?
power to actually kill you. Now, that's a theological question we could kick around. There might be some of you who say, well, he's not that powerful. I belong to God. But Jesus says to not to fear the one who can kill the body, but to fear the one who can cast both the body and the soul into hell. So we have an indication here that Satan has power to injure you. To kill you. He has the power to do that. And so we ask, why doesn't he just go ahead and do it then? Because that doesn't accomplish his purpose. You might be a Christian. He doesn't want to kill a Christian. That's graduation day. And he doesn't want to kill somebody that he might be able to convert who will be a cooperative in poisoning the world for the sake of hell. In other words, Satan's not so interested in just annihilating humanity as he is ruining humanity and then possessing them for eternity. That's his bigger goal. So he could kill me anytime he wants. He could kill you anytime he wants. What he'd prefer to see is you poisoned and you give birth to kids that you don't raise them in a godly fashion and he poisons them who gives birth to more kids who are poisoned and he can it, it's a plan it's a master plan when you can start poisoning the generations and they poison all the subsequent generations he's got something going for him that's the reason that he doesn't just go ahead and just annihilate us he wants to ruin you he wants to contaminate all of humanity with wickedness he wants to destroy people for eternity And in order to do that, he plants seeds of corruption in humanity. He tries to plant seeds of corruption in you that will spread to your family, your children, and they to their children. And every day you have to do a check on your life to see if corruption has been sown in your life. How many parents have begun to see the wrong things come out in their kids only to realize the parents are the one that planted that there? Now, that's not always the case. Kids pick up things from all kinds of different places. But when you realize you're the ones that planted those seeds, your kids are beginning to do things that you hope they never do, but they do it because they've watched you, and they adore you, and they want to be like you with all of your warts and all of your failures, just like you, because to them, that is perfection. That's what they believe. And does not it not scare you to think that you might be perpetuating something in your life that you're just holding it at bay? You're keeping control of this. But when your kids get a hold of it, they will not. And hell is there to make sure with every effort that your kids will not control it like you do. So when you're talking about your Christian liberties and what you can do and you're okay with the Lord and you can get away with a few things and you can be fuzzy around the edges, but it gets into your family and you see their lives destroyed. One man said the only thing worse than going to hell is knowing you took somebody else with you or you sent somebody there. I'm telling you, as a parent, that kept me on the straight and narrow. I wasn't worried about how far I could set the boundaries out in my family's life. I was worried about how close I could keep them in. I know it had to drive my boys crazy. I know it did. They didn't understand. It was one of those things, well, everybody else in church, their kids do this. 
The deacon's kids do this. Everybody else do this. Dad, why can't we? Because dad is scared of eternity. Dad is concerned that I could let out the reins a little bit. I could loosen the leash. But as long as I've got an opportunity to instill some values in there, I'm going to do it because one of these days, I'm going to turn you loose. I'm going to hope the influence I had on you somehow takes hold that you quit pulling against the leash and you start establishing your own boundaries. In order to do this and ruin humanity, Satan has to lie to you. He has to. He has to convince you that the wrong thing that you're doing is somehow better for you than the right thing you ought to be doing. You ever had him try to do that for you? He has to convince you that sin is good and godliness is a waste of time. You ever heard him suggest that to you? He has to convince you that above all else you have a right to be happy and the key to happiness is being able to do whatever you feel like doing without any restraint and he's convinced millions of that. He has to convince you that God wants you to be deprived and bored and unhappy. And it's why he's called the father of lies. Now back to my story. Micaiah plays this mind game with Ahab and says, well, if you... You want me just to tickle your ears? I can play that game too. No skin off my nose. King, go take it. Why do I care what you do? But when pressed for the truth, then Micaiah tells him the truth. It won't work. God's not in this. My third point. Ahab came to a point where he demanded truth. This is fascinating. The hater of truth somehow still wants to know truth. They may not want to obey it, but they don't want to be blind to it. They kind of want to measure where they are. You have to know truth to know where you are. They might be in the wrong, but they want to have some sense of how far wrong they are. It kind of gives them a sense of control over their destiny. So it came a time for this hater of truth, this man that had created this world he lived in, There was no truth there. It was all uh, imagery. It was all falsehood. This man came to a point where he demanded truth. I don't know what other churches in our community are doing because I don't visit them. I can tell you in a very fundamental way, there is a split, two-way split in the churches of the Quad Cities that used to all be one group. Churches united. All churches were under this Churches United. Until the agenda of Churches United began to include things that some of the conservative people felt like were stark compromises of biblical, godly Christian values. And it And there were churches that could not continue to support Churches United because of the compromises they were making. And they broke off, and they formed a group called QCAE. How many of you have ever been to a QCAE meeting, Quad City uh, Association of Evangelicals? This is the group that said to the other group, we can't go where you're going. We don't believe in the compromises that you are promoting, all in the name of let's get together and all have one big group hug in the name of God. 
They said, we can't do that. So you've got to, you've got to split. And s- some of the churches that stayed with the churches united, the reason they stayed is because this philosophy is coming from the pastor down. And, and the, the churches will follow that. Uh, we have a, a couple that came into, into our church uh, recently, in recent years, that had left a church that they, they said, it doesn't make a difference what church it was or what couple. They said, we didn't, we didn't like the, the lies that were being preached from the pulpit. We didn't like the compromise. We're looking for a church where the truth is preached. Now, that gets me salivating when people say that. I have a real passion for truth. And if I'm wrong, then I am just guilty of being wrong. But I want to know truth. I feel lost if I don't know what truth is. I'm kind of like Ahab here in this one instance. I've got to know what truth is. But if I don't know truth, I might be lost and not know it. And it's a desire for me not only to know truth, but to boldly share truth. Even if it costs Westside $150,000 in our budget per year, which it does. But it doesn't make any difference how many people disagree or how much money they carry or any other influence. The only thing that matters is one day I'm going to stand before God and God's going to judge me. That's all that matters. And I want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's it. It's very simple. And I'm still learning. And I still make mistakes. I'm learning every day. Like somebody had asked Mahatma Gandhi, why is it what you're teaching this week is different from what you're teaching last week? He says, because this week I learned something. Now that's one thing that at least we can honestly say. You might say, well, pastor, seven years ago I heard you say so and so. Yeah, but I learned something in the past seven years. And if I wasn't right on back then, I want to be right on today. I don't want to stick to what used to be if I discover I've made an error. And that's the way we ought to be as Christians. Not just to change because the world's changing, but change because God is enlightening us and training us and teaching us to come out of our own blindness and our own prejudiced ways and our own pet doctrines in the Bible and come to the point where we're learning new things that are actually truth, that we were not holding on to truth. We were just holding on traditions sometimes. So I don't know what's happening in all the churches. But we have this nasty split. But I, I do have some idea of what's happening in our nation. I know that truth is no longer valued like it has been at a time in my life. Uh, there was a time when the television executives looked towards the church and the pastors, the ministers of the nation to audit the content of their television programming to establish boundaries of decency. And they stayed within those boundaries of decency because the church had the measure. These things are good. These things are bad. Don't cross the boundaries. Are you not amazed that that ever existed in the United States of America? Is there anybody in television today that gives a hoot what I think about what is right and wrong anymore? The only reason the might want to know truth is so they can slander it. If, if they find out what's important to a Christian, they'll slander it. They'll discredit it. That's the only thing they want to do with truth. Our nation is being transformed into a culture that is tolerant 
of every form of sin and depravity, but intolerant, intolerant of one thing, truth, which is accompanied by righteousness and godliness. Like I mentioned before, there are those who have rejected truth and thrown it out. Then there are the next generation who are growing up in a twisted, demented world devoid of truth, but filled with lies and illusions. And that's really where I am today in this sermon. I want to get down to this point right here, is the youth of our nation. That they're not hearing the truth unless they're somewhere where there's the preaching of the truth. Unless they're living under the household or the authority of somebody who trusts God's word and are teaching them the truth. But without God, without the Bible, without godly teachers, without the church, they're not hearing truth. They're being raised on lies. And just as happy as they can be to living in this, be living in this make-believe world of falsehoods. Illusions everywhere. And these young people that have never known anything else are growing up to believe that the perversions and the things that are happening are all okay. They're all right. They are applauded for doing these things, and they applaud others for doing those things. Like it says in the book of Romans, that they not only did these things, but that they, they approved of and they applauded of, of those who were doing those things. That's the generation we're living in. So these young people living in this topsy-turvy world where right is wrong and wrong is right. And this is the question that I want to ask today. Is it possible, like Ahab had this moment where he had to have truth. He didn't like truth. He didn't value truth, except whenever he knew that this man possessed truth and he didn't know what it was, he demanded it. My question is, like Ahab, is it possible that this generation who has been lied to might ever have a moment of awakening? Is it possible they will be so disgusted with the miserable life they've inherited from those who have lied to them that they're one day going to stand up and say, well, somebody, please tell me the truth. I'm asking, is it possible this generation, when they figure out that sex outside of marriage is not some harmless recreation to be enjoyed, but it's a pathway to misery, loneliness, despair, brokenness, pain, suffering that never truly satisfies. Will they then start looking for truth? When this generation finally figures out that God's framework for the family is perfect and all the deviations to that framework fail to deliver what they promise, will they then begin to go seeking for truth? When this generation finally figures out that there are certain moral absolutes that cannot be disregarded without consequences, will they wake up and will they cry out, Somebody, tell me the truth! I hope they do. It's possible. I don't know that they will. But I'm praying they have this Ahab moment. I'm praying that they, in their misery of living under the lies that have been fed to them through Hollywood and through their educational system and by the lifestyle of those that they trust so much, that one day they realize that this is not what God wants. This is not the pathway to happiness. This is not what God designed for my life. This is a one-way road to hell. There's no way out of this unless you turn to God. I hope that the generation wakes up and says, surely there has to be something more than just living life 
life the way you want to live it and then dying. There has to be something more than putting up with the misery of, of uh, participating in all the wickedness and, and without, without restriction, without boundaries, without fences. There has to be something more to this. David Wilkerson told the story many years ago about a young daughter that was becoming of a rebellious age in her life. And the father was trying to rein her in, but the harder he tried to rein her in, the more she rebelled. And he had forbid her to go out on a date with this young man that he knew was no good. But she defied her father. And he wasn't taking the fatherly stance he should have. Because, you know, it's difficult to be a parent. You want to do tough love, but you don't want to be rejected by your child because you're too hard on them. How many of you know that conundrum? You want to do what's right, but you don't want them to despise you. And we wrestle with this, and we think, I know what they ought to do, but if I make them do it, it's like like this old thing about uh, this concept that you shouldn't make your children go to church because they'll grow up to hate it. Do you feel the same way about school? Do you feel the same way about the dentist and the doctor? you feel the same way about forcing your child to do things you know are good for them, or does it just apply to church? Is that your easy out? So this daughter goes on the date. She comes back, and they have the audacity in her rebellious state to park in the driveway. And they sit inside that car, and they're in heavy petting, smooching and making out. And the father peeks out the curtain and sees what his daughter's doing. And he marches out there. He finally got a backbone. Finally, fatherhood took a hold of him, and he opened that door and took his daughter out. And he spanked her where God designed it to be and sent her into the house and chased the boy off. And he went inside and expected to have another fight with his daughter for embarrassing her and how dare him. And she threw his arms around him and said, It's about time. They want to know the truth. They want boundaries. They want somebody that cares. Cares enough to tell them the truth. I can't promise you that every story is going to turn out like that in parenting. I can't promise you that. But I can promise you this. You have a responsibility to teach the truth. Point number four, the rejection of truth. When Ahab demanded the truth of Micaiah, he only wanted it long enough to make an official rejection. Now that you've told me truth, let me officially say, I don't care. Ahab tells the servants, lock Micaiah up. And he says to Micaiah, you will stay locked up. You'll be on rations of bread and water until the day I come back from battle. And the question is, what makes you think you're coming back from battle? The truth has just come forward and says you're not coming back. There's a disconnect. There is this massive disconnect in Ahab's brain because he has lived in the world of illusions and delusions for so long. He can't put two and two together spiritually. And he won't come back. He doesn't come back. The final rejection of truth When God says you will not win doing things the world's way and acting like the world, 
Why do we persist in doing that? There was hope for Ahab as long as he demanded truth, but he lost all hope when he rejected it. I'm preaching what I believe with all of my heart to be truth today. It's time to accept the truth and reject the lies. You have an opportunity to turn this thing around. There's still time. There's still hope. Anybody who wants to break rank with the fools of this world and seek the truth, there is still time for you today. God's word is still here for those who want to know the truth. Godly preachers are still proclaiming truth for those who are sick of being lied to. The Holy Spirit is still calling for people to depart from wickedness and seek the Lord. There's still time. There's still hope. But if people continue to reject the truth one of these days, it'll be too late. My final point is this. What do we do about truth? It's very simple. Believe it. Teach it, preach it, share it. And this is the most important point. It's, it's more important than just simply believing and teaching. Live the truth. It's no good to believe it and nod your head and say, yeah, that's good. And you've got going, things going in in your life that are not godly. You're not living the truth. It's important to believe it, share it, and live it. Let's pray. Here's what we can do. Let's pray there's an awakening here in the United States of America. Let's pray there's a revival with our young people who have never had godly upbringing. That suddenly they're sick and tired of what they've been spoon-fed. They're sick of drinking out of the cesspool of this world, and they want truth. Let's pray that there's an awakening. Let's continue to shine the light of truth in the grossest darkness of this deceptive world. Let's not only agree with truth, Let's be committed to let the Holy Spirit teach us how to live the truth. Let's stand for truth even when we stand in the minority. Let us stand unwavering for truth. Let us not be embarrassed by what the world thinks about us. Let us not be intimidated by the accusations they bring against us. Stand for truth and stand unflinching. Throughout history, there have been the Micaiahs and the Jeremiahs and the John Bunyans and the Harold Popovs and the Richard Wormbrands who have been severely persecuted for standing for truth. And the people like Pastor Saeed who right now, as we sit in this climate-controlled building, comfortably enjoying our Christian fellowship, he suffers because he stands for truth and he will not back down. All he has to do is convert away from truth into that religion and he's free man. At least in this world. But he stands for truth. Truth will survive. Not because of the number of people who embrace it. Because of the strength and the resolve of those who embrace it. That's you. That's what you can do for truth. Bow your heads.